landlords are viewed it's going to be the end of the world. They could go get a job in the new thriving economy that will happen when tenants have money to spend. <laughs> Hi, my name's Alyssa. And my name is Bridget. And you're listening to Money Feels, the podcast where we finally talk about whether or not there's actually a housing crisis in Canada. I, I didn't know there was doubt about that. <laughs> oh, you'll find out all about it today. We have <laughs> a very special guest, one that I'm, this is probably the most excited I've been to record an episode this season. Yeah, you're fangirling so I hard. I know, I'm all nervous. <laughs> Today, we have Ricardo Dranjan on the podcast. He is a political economist and a senior researcher with the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. And he used to manage Toronto's poverty reduction strategy and taught at universities. And his early academic work focused on economic development and participatory democracy in Brazil, his native country. And so we have him on today, and I'm very excited about it. Hi, Ricardo. Hello. Nice to be here. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. We're glad you could make it. Um, we usually start every episode by asking how your money feels today. I'll ask Bridget first, so you can get a feel for, it, for how we answer, but... How does your money feel today, Bridget? It feels good because I'm doing girl math or potentially vacation math for <laughs> my Disneyland trip that I just got back from last week because it was really expensive, obviously, because we were in Disneyland, capitalist paradise, and I was putting in all our expenses in my tracking, but I realized that because we were in Disneyland, I didn't spend any money at home. So right. there was no coffee orders. There was no grocery. I paused my meal delivery. I didn't drive my car. So I had no gas. And I was like, oh, that trip wasn't as damaging to my finances as I thought because I really saved money by going. Yeah, it cancels out. <laughs> it cancels out. <laughs> so my money feels good because I did girl math for Disneyland. <laughs> Fair. How does your money feel, Alyssa? You know what? It's... Good. I was just doing my business taxes, so no fun trips over here. But <laughs> I, this is the first year I've made like a really significant investment in my business. And so that was just, it feels good, but scary at the same time. So mixed, mixed feelings about money. Sounds good. Yeah. How about you, Ricardo? Well, I'm a researcher in a public policy specialist. So I'm more used to talk about other people's money than my own money. <laughs> <laughs> I like talking about the government's money and okay. um, households money in that more generical kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to answer. How does the government's money feel today? Oh, great question. Well, well, actually, <laughs> it feels well. If you, it depends on who you're speaking, but uh, the Ontario government, for example, uh, public finances are actually looking pretty good. Have big surpluses, um, and uh, the forecasting is good. Um, unfortunately, we're not seeing the kind of expenditure that uh, would make people's lives better. Uh, it seems like they're just stashing the money away for now. Oh, tale as old as time on that mm -hmm. one. <laughs> Oh, thank you. Well, the reason we wanted to have you on today is because this summer, which I already told you before we hit record, I read your book, The Tenant Class. I actually first read your article in The Walrus, which is how I found the book. It was really well done. I was looking on information about the housing crisis, and then I came across your article, and I had my own crisis 
because <laughs> I started looking at everything completely differently. Immediately bought your book. And yeah, it was just a really fascinating read. So to start off, I guess, do you want to tell us a little bit about what the book is about and why you wanted to write the book? Yes, absolutely. So I'm a researcher in a think tank. We're engaged in day-to-day policy debates, a lot of economic debates. In my case, I focus a lot on the social policy side of things. And for a couple of years now, I'm in... um, I'm doing work on on the housing file with particular emphasis on rental housing and uh, low and moderate income households, uh, which kind of you know is a it's a it's a kind of natural um, evolution of my work. I worked for the city of Toronto before in the poverty reduction strategy team, and and my previous academic work was also about um, things that we could you know broadly called anti-poverty measures. And um, the reason I wrote the book is because I thought we need to repoliticize the housing debate. Um, we talk a lot about housing, like a lot, every single so day. <laughs> like the main topic in Canadian finance right now, I feel. And outside of even Canadian finance, it's part of our entire lives at this point. Absolutely. And um, and yet, I feel that we don't talk about uh, some of the most important aspects of the so-called housing crisis, right? We don't we don't talk about the, the opposing and and and, um, and inevitably incongruent um, needs and interests of, of different sectors of society, and and so that kind of thing. So I thought, okay, we need we need a different framing. We need to politicize this debate in a good way. You know, I mean, politicize not in like party politics way, but politicize in the way of having a grown-up conversation about this and understand that uh, we have different groups that have different interests and opposing interests and they kind of hash it out and and the politics is kind of this fear where that happens. Gotcha. I'm so excited. I haven't read your book. Alyssa did recommend it to me immediately after she (laughs) read it, but I don't read as many books as her, so I'm way, way behind. But I have read some books on similar topics but just in case I ask any silly questions it's because I'm like I'm the listener here I'm like the rest of the people listening to the podcast but I think this topic is so interesting and so exciting and I love that you're talking about poverty in Canada because housing and lack of access to housing or lack of affordability to housing is really trapping people in a cycle that they cannot escape from so one of the the very first article that I read to the title was there is no housing crisis, which is like immediately why I clicked. And so <laughs> what I guess, can you kind of describe for people what exactly constitutes a housing crisis in the first place? And why do you feel like there is no housing crisis in Canada? Yes, that's from the opening of the book. My uh, introductory chapter argues that there is no housing crisis and by that, I mean that it is misleading to call what we see today a crisis. I don't mean to belittle the very 
concrete and real hardship that so many are experiencing. But when we call it a crisis, we tend to think of something that is um, that is unexpected, that it came out as a, as a shock. We tend to think about something that impacts everyone, has like a broad, generalizable um, negative impact, sort of like COVID, you know, where everyone was hit in one way or another. And we also try, try, tend to think about something that we're all interested in solving. Right, no one mm-hmm. likes crisis, and so if we have a crisis, we need to solve it. We need to kind of get rid of it, um, and and I think that's a, a very inaccurate and and misleading way to characterize what we have here in ahead of us. What we have is it's a housing market that has been structurally set up in the same way for many many decades. Uh, things are gradually getting worse. Uh, especially for tenants. And that's the second point of it. Not everyone is experiencing the negative impacts of the so-called crisis. Um, a lot of people are making a lot of money out of this. Um, yes. <laughs> right? Um, a lot of new millionaires in Canada because of our real estate market. Absolutely. And, uh, and you know, we have entire sectors of the economy that are managed to, through what economists call economic rent, Um draw a large and larger share of all revenues and sort of like, you know, draw into their own industry, into their own activities. And there are activities that don't necessarily generate jobs or, or, or economic growth. Uh, but, you know, through economic rent, they're able to do that. Um, you have uh, people who own homes whose values are increasing like, really fast. Um and who are actually experiencing the negative impacts of this crisis are tenants and people who are unhoused. Um, so that's the second point. And, and, and the third point, I, and the most important for me, is that it's not everyone trying to solve this. You know, there, there are a lot of pretty powerful groups in this country very actively lobbying to keep the things exactly the way they are um, or, or in some cases to make things worse for tenants uh, through the further deregularization of, trend, of rents and, and so on and so forth. So I, I find it misleading to call it a crisis. I prefer to, to speak of it as a political struggle between the two groups, the ones that are reaping massive benefits from this and the ones who are experiencing housing security and fearing eviction. Can I ask my first potentially ignorant question <laughs> on the topic? You said that this has been something that's been building gradually, but why then does it feel so sudden? Because it seems like the narrative around this is really centering on our post-pandemic world and that things were like we've had an overheated housing market for a long time but I don't think we called it a crisis until even the past 18 months or so like it felt very sudden but you're saying that this has really been going on for how how long has this really been a problem in Canada well it depends who you ask <laughs> and <laughs> in a sense that it depends how people experience and where they're they're they they fall into this right what i'm saying is that the structure of the market has not changed right mm-hmm. um like in canada the way we're organizing house is essentially that we encourage the middle class to own because that is the ultimate um way of accessing um, housing security and then and also there's a lot of cultural aspects attached to it, you know, is often associated with success and, 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 and so on and so forth. Um, and there's a big chunk of folks who, who usually a third of the population um, that doesn't get to own. And then we tell them, no, good luck at the private rental market, you know, fend for yourselves. 
Um, and then there is a very sort of residual share of the market, um, which is now is about 4%, where governments provide subsidies or provide social housing and so on and so forth. It's a very small share of the total housing stock and it's very targeted, very low income folks. So for that, you know, for most of that one third of the population, they're left to, to fend for themselves in, 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 in the housing, in, in the private rental housing market. And, um, Overall, we have failed regulating the market um, adequately to provide folks financial uh, security and, and, and security of tenure. Um, and so that, that hasn't changed too much. That's what I, kind of my point is. Um, but you're right that there are ebbs and flows. And there, there are moments where, where things feel worse. People feel mm-hmm. um, more, a little bit, feel that the situation is a little bit more desperate. And, you know, we have had moments like this uh, after World War II, um, in the 1990s and then sort of 2000 and around 2008 and the crisis there and, and I would say now, you know, so there, there are moments where things get uh, more difficult. But the interesting thing is that whenever we hit, we hit a time like this, um, the sort of economic thinking on which so much of our understanding of society is based, which is what some call the neoclassical economics, um, always assumes that the market works and that the private private markets work and in the long run, everything balances itself out. So whenever we hit a moment of crisis, if you will, like now, we jump at finding, we jump to, to trying to find what's wrong, right? Like so, something got to be out of place, something kind of derailed. You know, there's a little bit too much of something or too, or too little of something. And we need to find what that is and we need to fix it. And then, you know, things will be better and everyone's going to be happy, ever, uh, happily ever after. And, and we rarely question the entire system, right? We, we don't do that. We just kind of like, ah, oh, this is, you know, and, and that's kind of perpetuates the system. So, so we go through these moments where things are more difficult. We find a scapegoat. We kind of weather through it at great human loss for some, um, a human cost for some. And then, you know, kind of we move on and we forget about the fact that the entire system kind of remains the same. And that sooner or later, we're going to hit another tough spot like that. Yeah, I was going to say, I feel like the two buzzwords that we'll always see in every headline is either unaffordability or affordability and supply. Like we need more. Those are the two things you're pointing to, I think, is like we need more supply so that people can access more housing or homes just aren't affordable. And so can you explain why focusing solely on increasing supply or like talking about things in the sense of affordability don't actually address the root issues? Yeah. So thinking about home ownership, for example, right now, the common narrative, as you said, is that we didn't build enough houses. That's why houses are expensive. And then you hear that from the different parties at the federal level right now. Um, and sometimes you hear this very, very disingenuous statement of saying municipalities got underway, so we didn't build enough housing. Now we'll build more housing and things will get better. And there is no mention whatsoever of the fact that starting in the 1990s, we completely changed the role of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation. They used to be able to provide, you know, direct support 
to the building of rental units, to the building of non-market housings, and used to also de-risk the market a little bit of, of, of for mortgage providers. But starting in the 1990s and 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 then and then and continuing to this day, the CMHC plays a huge role. In, through securitization and, and some kind of complicated back-end financial operations and the selling and buying of bonds and so on and so forth, the CMHC has continually injected more and more and more and more credit in the market um, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and removed all the risk from, for, the, for the mortgage providers, for the big banks, who are more than happy to literally create money and loan that money to whoever happens to be walking by the sidewalk. Hey, doing a mortgage. <laughs> take, take a mortgage. And then, and, and the amounts of these mortgages are obscene. They're like twice as much as was they used to be in terms of yeah. uh, in, in, as a, as a as a relation to to people's total household income, right? Uh, mm-hmm. So if you're going back into the 1980s and you think about like you know what people are making and what they were able to to, to get in terms of a mortgage, and nowadays. It in some cases is literally twice as much. You know, people have mortgages that are four or five times the total household income. Um, yeah. And that has injected so much credit in, in debt into the market and has allowed folks to make these very rational choices of um, take, buying houses that are four or five times the total under household income, houses that are old, houses that they've you know, they decided to forego inspection, houses that they offered, you know, yeah. 30, 40, 50,000 more. Like someone, someone is assuming that risk, right? And, mm-hmm. and, in, and, and to, to a large extent, who is assuming that risk is the federal government through CMHC. And that has played an enormous role in creating this scenario where we are right now. But we don't talk about this. We don't talk about it. And yeah. then you have, you would have at least two par- different parties would be, you know, very directly involved in creating this mess. And we don't talk about this. We prefer to focus on supply. So that's one example of how we simplified the message greatly. We found the supply and demand stuff that people sort of intuitively yeah. get. And we, we kind of don't talk about it, kind of what's underneath. I think that there is a level of complexity to that, though, that is difficult to understand because financial deregulation has been such a huge driver in increasing asset prices like the same has been true in the stock market as well like i bet canadian bank stocks have done really well well i know they have done well <laughs> they're the ones profiting <laughs> one, of, one of the most over uh this faux housing crisis that we have but yeah anytime you extend credit and especially the tr- cheap credit that we've had since 2008 it always leads to a spike in asset value because that's what people love to buy when money's cheap and easy. But I do think that is more definitely more complicated for most people to understand. Whereas saying, oh, there's not enough houses seems like an easier concept to grasp, even if it's wrong, unfortunately. Yeah. And I like the term affordability too. That's just an easy one for us to understand. <laughs> we know when something is affordable versus when it's not. So when we use the word affordability this often, like what sort of happens for people? Well, in in the book, which is mostly focused on, you know, as the 
title suggests, the tenure <laughs> class. Um, after that introduction, I say, well, there's no housing crisis. In fact, what we have is a rental market housing that is set up to allow you know, property owners to you know, appropriate a larger and larger share of the income of tenants mm-hmm. and grow their wealth. This is what the market does. It does extremely well. As far as you know, landlords are concerned, the marketing is working extremely well. Um, so, oh, this is like icky to even listen to, but you're totally right. Like, it is really a wealth extraction from the working class into the pockets of the landlord class. Yeah, who's benefiting? Like, Always uh, the, question. the market works like, like a whistle. Like, what's <laughs> it extracts money from low and moderate income folks and and and, and transfers it to folks where whose wealth is increasing, be it individual investors, be it the so-called mom-and-pop landlords, and, and but especially the large corporate and, and financialized landlords. So, you know, we have a chapter that talks about tenants, who they, who they are, but I also have a chapter that talks about landlords and who they are, because we tend to romanticize a lot landlords as like individual mm-hmm. families struggling to pay mm-hmm. their own mortgage, where that's actually not, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the, the real face of, of landlords in this country. Um, but what I was getting at into is the fact that when we talk about affordability of rents, um, we don't mention profit, which is which is quite interesting. Like uh, mm-hmm. I've gone through these government documents that are more than a hundred pages long, and then where the word affordability appears, I think thirty, forty times, and there's no mention of profit. So we have these sentences where straightforward bad English sentences because they have no subject and verb right we say mm-hmm. rents are f- increasing fast that's a really bad sentence right because <laughs> you need a subject in that sentence and the sentence would be rewritten by saying landlords are increasing rent by a lot right yeah and so we we have yeah. this conversation we have terms now like rent growth rent inflation so we mm-hmm. really go out of our way um at you know even at the expense of english grammar in order to remove the actor from the action in order to provide this you know supply and demand kind of narrative where no one's at fault it's just the market doing its thing you know the invisible hand will eventually you know figure everything out but there's no invisible hand when someone evicts a tenant that's not the invisible hand of the market is a landlord that push the tenants out that's their hand it's a landlord hand it's a landlord hand pushing the tenant outside of the apartment it's not the invisible hand of the market so we need to bring those actions you know and those individuals and that agency on the part of landlords but also on the part of tenants because then i talk about you know tenants who organize and and form tenant unions and go on strike and do all sorts of things so there's agency on both sides. And that's what I call a grown-up conversation, right? When, when we talk about this, you know, it's a political issue. People have different interests. They're all trying to kind of defend their own interests and, and, and there's a struggle here. So let's talk about it. Instead of pretending that this is a huge technical puzzle where no one is at fault, no one's doing anything, it's just the market. It's kind of kind of it's kind of boring too, like to talk about it that way. You know what I mean? Like Yeah, yeah. Can you explain, I guess then what what do landlords look like? Because yeah, a lot of us are just thinking, oh, it's my neighbor who bought a house and now I'm renting from them and yeah. they're increasing rents because interest rates have gone up. So I can't really fault them for that. 
So who really are landlords? <laughs> so there is a, a, a small but growing share of landlords. There are the financialized landlords, right? So these are the, the infamous real estate investment trusts. Um, and, you know, the role is just to pull, pull capital together, buy apartment buildings. Um, and often the strategy is to reposition those apartment buildings, repositioning being the term that they use to refer to uh, changing tenancies, bring new tenants into units. Because when you do that, there's no rent controls in, in many provinces, right? In the province that do have rent controls, rent controls more often apply only to occupied units. Once the tenants leave, um, you can give a facelift to the unit and rent for uh, a lot more to the next tenant. So the repositioning is essentially, you know, that process. And then when you do that to a large number of the units of the building you bought, the overall value, not only the, your, you know, uh, not only your, your rent revenues increase, but also the value of the asset also increases uh, because you have ways to show that the median income of your tenants are higher. So that um, gives a new and, and increased value to, to your asset as well. So that's kind of one share of, of, of landlords. You have the corporate landlords, which are um, large uh, firms. Uh, they're not publicly traded. They don't, you know, they are not... Um, set up in the same way uh they're more set up like as the traditional landlords uh, traditional firms but they're quite large in size uh you have the so-called mom and pop landlords which again it's it's a romanticized term these are small businesses that operate like businesses that should follow laws and regulations and 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 operate like businesses um and those who are not good at what they do may go under also happens to all businesses, um, except that um, landlords usually have fewer regulations and, 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 and can transfer um, a lot of their costs onto tenants, which some businesses are able to do it or not, and you can get into that specifics. And then you have a large share, uh, a large number, like a big chunk of, 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 of landlords who are individual investors. So now we talked about, you know, folks who own maybe your neighbor, as you mentioned, or own a second and third or fourth uh, home. Um, when you look at, as I do in the book and in some other research that I published, at the net um, net wealth of those families, it's 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 pretty high and, and, and much, much, much higher than, than the average for Canada. So these are families that are overall doing uh, well um, and and good for them, but don't come on television and cry poor every time, right? Don't let's not equate mm -hmm. your financial situation with the financial situation of of tenants. They're they're quite in in, in different um, in different um, places, and and to the question of uh, interest rates, for example, they they impact landlords in in. Like and and you know this, but the impact landlords, the impact that they have on landlords, it's often exaggerated, right? So for for mm -hmm. the large landlords, um, they have a, their 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 debt portfolio is quite large, um, and it's it's really diversified too. So they have some buildings that have already been paid for, some buildings that are, you know they're halfway through the mortgage, the ten year mortgage that they don't have to renew for another nine years. They have some mortgages that are gonna be up soon and they're gonna have to renew at a higher rate. But that one mortgage, you know, that is at a higher rate is gonna be 
kind of you know mixed with everything else and the impact of that high rate for the you know share of the, the total uh, portfolio that had to be renewed at in the, during the years that our interest were high, it kind of gets you know diluted in your entire in your entire uh, debt servicing costs, right? So you know the, to say that oh my god, interest rates went up now I have to increase rents, nah. <laughs> It's, it's, not, it's not accurate. But then to your neighbor who someone convinced um, that all they had to do was to kind of come up with a 5% for, yeah, of, of the cost yeah, of a condo, down payment. put that down payment, and then just not worry about it because the thing was going to pay for itself. And then 20 years from now, they would have a second home. And that's a big yeah. chunk of their uh of their retirement plan, unfortunately, that's more people are more and more banking on as their investment, as, a, as their, uh, their retirement plan. So there's two things there. First, when mortgage rates go up, and perhaps now the unit doesn't pay for itself anymore, so they, yeah. they have some sort of operational loss, right? So you know now they have to maybe put a couple hundred dollars every month to kind of make the whole thing break even. They're not losing money, and you know this, right? They, they again. Right. I think that's a lot of Canadians, especially many the amateur landlords that have gotten into the real estate market in recent years, is they don't even mind if they're renting it at a loss because if rent doesn't cover the mortgage payments and property taxes, because the value of Canadian housing has increased so much, it's a speculative bet on a capital gain is what a lot of them are going for. Like I, I spend a lot of time in like personal finance Reddit and Canadian housing Reddit and the number of people that are like, yeah, my property is cash flow negative $400 a month, but it's increased in value $200,000 in the time that I've owned it. It's just insane. I was going to say, I just think like the second you called it a business, it just like <laughs> switched to something in my brain because yeah it doesn't matter like how many properties you own it's still a business we also frame it as passive income it's not yeah (laughs) you're you're operating a business a small business so I really like that switch because I feel like that for me instantly was like oh yeah I I don't really feel bad you took a business risk absolutely and 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 that's all I you know, often call for, you know, let's talk about it a business. Let's talk about it in, in real terms. You know, you have an operational loss, you're likely going to have a, a capital gain that more than makes up for it. So, you know, you're going to, you're good. And if you don't have enough um, cash flow to absorb the high interest rate and, and, and to absorb that capital, um, the operational loss, I'm sorry, but that was a really bad idea to make that investment in the first <laughs> yeah, place. Exactly. exactly. If you don't have $300 more a month to pay, if your mortgage goes up or if the unit, you know, the ACs go, go broke kind of thing. And, but to your point about business, there is, um, Prince Edward Island has some of the best rent controls in the problem in the country, right? Oh, okay. But they have some exceptions to the rent controls. And and, 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 and those are, you know, you don't want to get too much into the weeds of a rent control policy. But there's this thing, when you have tight rent controls on both occupied and, and vacant units, units there's, a, there's an argument to be made for uh, cost pass-through mechanisms. So if you have any, you know, additional and, and large expenditure, you know, you might be able to apply for an additional rent increase to make up for at least part of that. So those are called above guideline rent increases or, or similar names across the country. Um, so in PI, one of the rationale, one of the grounds 
on which you can apply for an above guideline rate increase is that you're not having reasonable returns on your investment. Oh my oh god, my. really? Which I was talking to the, with the, my, the lady here who owns the bakery across the street. And I was like, wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't you yeah. love, <laughs> wouldn't you love right? to have a mechanism by which you can never lose money? Wouldn't it be oh great if all small That's... businesses had that? Yeah. If, yeah, if they operated like businesses. And then in your book too, you said the average net worth of multi, multiple property owner families in Canada was $1.7 million, excluding mortgage debt. Oh. <laughs> so it's like, yeah, sorry. That's all. That's the response to you because I think you're doing okay. Um, but how does this wealth disparity relate to the unaffordability of housing for the working class? Yeah. And that's the big question, right? So I think one of the things that concern me the most is that um, more and more wages don't buy houses. Houses yeah. buy more houses. Um, yeah. So for me, the concern is coming from, you know, having grown up in Brazil, a country with, you know, absurd levels of, of socioeconomic inequality, coming to Canada and, 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 you know, enjoying being in a society where the inequality is not as as um as bad um what worries me is moving forward the fact that the intergenerational transfer of wealth will become a huge factor on whether or not people access home ownership and therefore continues to build more wealth or not right so so mm -hmm. you know for number of generations working class families were able to access homeownership, tapping only into their own wages and savings. Um, and it is hard to imagine that moving forward, uh, because even well-paid two-income professional kind of households um, are having a really hard time coming up mm -hmm. with the amount that would be necessary to kind of make the math work. Right. And so we see, and I'm sure you probably talk about this in other episodes, you see the more and more uh, people rely on gifts or loans from their parents uh, who are likely, you know, tap into their equity in their own mm -hmm. houses to buy a house for the kids and so on and so forth. So when the gift amounts are crazy, like mm -hmm. whenever I look at the statistics for the average gift and i think uh last time i looked at it it was like $180,000 in some cities and that's the average gift so some people are even getting more than that which is but that's what it takes when houses are over a million dollars in some urban centers yeah so we're really going to start talking about those who you know own housing those who don't as two very separate yeah. groups and just groups of families right um yeah and on top of that, not to be too daunting, but um, <laughs> Canada has no inheritance tax, right? So we have. I know. Yeah. That's wild. That's so crazy. So inheritance tax has a way of, like, you know, correcting some of those inequalities. Uh, and no gift tax, which is mm -hmm. how these down payments are happening. Like, and yeah, it's awkward to discuss this because both Alyssa and I are homeowners. And. Yeah, it's interesting to know the power and position that gives, especially because we both have children and raising them. And yeah, I think about that all the time, that there's no tax on gifts that I can provide my child with financial support in adulthood, and it will just be free and clear. 
Yeah, and and on the side and rents, right? Rents are increasing too. So you have that, you know, the fact that wages are not keeping up with with yeah. um, both the cost of housing, but also with with rents are consuming a large and larger share of wages, right? So people have a hard time building any kind of financial cushion. As as we know, renting has some some underrated um, advantages. Yes. Oh yeah, I rented up until like two years ago, and I loved it. Yes. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have bought a home if I didn't have kids. Exactly. Because renting is yeah. so beneficial. Yeah, the mobility and, and and other things, and some of that, you know, it's it's not as 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 concrete as it could be uh, because of the lack of regulations and 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 um, and or the poor regulations or weakening regulations in the rental market, uh, but it's still um, it's hard for now folks to to have any sort of cushion or to put money aside for uh, retirement or anything like this um, Mm -hmm. if rent is consuming such a a big chunk of... I think the frustration of a lot of renters too is that their rent is so expensive they can't save a down payment for homeownership. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and and for me that's a huge argument for rent controls, right? We we Mm -hmm. too often, um, those who... who, um, advocate for rent controls uh too often we i think we we tend to think about the benefits that would bring to low and moderate income families that is struggling to keep their houses they're struggling to uh put food on the table to to get enough you know in, in decent clothing for the kids to go to the school in the winter and those kinds of basic necessity but there is a much broader argument i think to be made for for rent controls i will help those families for sure and it's really important because we're talking about a very dire situations where people may be evicted um but we're also going to help you know more middle income renters who are trying to you know have some sort of cushion of some sort it's going to help you know higher income renters who are trying to save for a down payment Mm -hmm. and one thing that i'm starting to look at in my research um it's also the impact that would have for local economies right when rent Mm -hmm. takes because we always think about ah people don't have money to buy other things because of rent and and they're they're making sacrifice but if they're not buying other things means some people are not selling other things right Um, that's true like if you are spending so much on rent and or saving for a down payment, you're not going out to dinner, you're not participating in the local economy because so much of your income is being tied up in housing. It's been tied up in house, but it's been transferred to someone else, right? And who? Who is right. it being transferred right. to? Wealth extraction, <laughs> yeah. landlord hand. So, so it is going to, again, to banks and, and, and the shareholders of banks. Um, and these are, or it's going to to landlords with a net wealth of of 1.7 million, or it's going to to, to folks with much higher incomes. Uh, which one? First, we know that the higher your income, uh, the higher propensity to save, to spend on luxury goods, mm-hmm. to spend on abroad, uh, to. Uh, to reinvest in the financial market, right? So th- that money, you know, doesn't disappear necessarily, um, right? But it's less likely to stay local and just recirculate yeah. in the economy, right? Um, so gotcha. I think there's, you know, there's this kind of broader economic argument to be made for for bringing in um, rents, and, and especially because like rent um, is an economic activity, residential. Uh, um, real estate um, that doesn't generate a lot of employment. Um, yeah, for true. Sure. For real. Right? So Yeah, so I feel like, well, it's like you pay all of this rent, 
it, it if there was rent controls, it's not going to impact the landlords very much. Like rent controls based on everything you've said about like their net worth and their income level and the amount of properties they own, like rent controls probably wouldn't have that much of an impact for them. So it's just confusing to me why we don't do it. Okay, that was going to be my question too. I, I was like, this is my other dumb question. It's like rent control clearly seems good for the tenants, good for the economy. Landlords will still be okay. So why don't we have more rent control in place? Landlords are view it's going to be the end of the world. That they're not going to be okay. Uh, that they're not going to be able to, you know, stay afloat and develop. So what, they might have to get a real job? <laughs> something else like what did they mean what exactly they could go get a job in the new thriving economy that will happen when tenants have money to spend <laughs> and 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 um so so the classic argument against rent controls is that uh, if you impose rent controls the business is going to be less attractive and um, it's going to attract less investment less people will build purpose um build residential units Um, and there's also going to be less incentives for uh keeping um, a state of good repair on on units right because you have less cash flow so you're going to put less money in 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 maintaining those units so the those arguments there are kind of like a dogma as soon as you talk about um um, rent control someone's going to throw their argument at you and you can see on social media you talk about social there's some realtor that comes like no that's going to kill supply some (laughs) developer that's going to kill supply make things bad for everyone else so it's so from the part of of the real estate industry it's it's clearly a self-serving argument um Mm -hmm. from the empirical perspective um what happens is that in the 1950s and 1960s, kind of like right after the war, and actually during the war too, um, there were uh, rent freezes. Um, this was kind of like blunt instruments, like governments mm-hmm. froze rents for an unknown, undetermined amount of time. Um, they didn't put any other policies in place to incentivize supply or anything. And when you look at the empirical research that came from that period, um, it's true that it had negative impacts in terms of investments, in terms of maintenance and repairs and all of that, right? Um, the thing is, no one is arguing anymore for that. F- what is often called first-generation rent controls, which are blunt instruments. Uh, the rent controls that we have right now are much more uh, sophisticated and, and they um, allow for annual increases that keep keep faced with inflation. Sometimes they have these best cost-through mechanisms that allow for extraordinary costs to be passed on and so on and so forth. But it's still in that self-serving sort of of argument that we'll tap into the research, no matter how old it is, to make that point. And going back to new classical economics and the the faith in the the market and in the supply and demand curves, um, new classical economists hate price controls of any sort and and they and they and they argue against it in principle uh because they think that is a it's going to distort the functioning of the market which is assumed to work well right so it doesn't matter if it's on bananas shoes or rents they don't like rent controls mm-hmm. they really argue against it even if so there's a lot of economists who know absolutely nothing about housing but then argue against rent controls just in principle uh oh, mm-hmm. so but it's so yeah, it's so clear the more time I spend in finance as the years go by that capitalism is a religion we subscribe to. It's not really like actually based in fact, like it's a belief that we have that the market will write itself. And then we treat that like it's fact, no matter how many things prove that it's not true, because we've just all bought into this cult that 
it that's the way it is. And it seems like no matter the amount of mounting evidence against it, we just cannot be swayed. And I think it's hard too when all the schools around that, like schools of economics or finance, just repeat these things. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is just the way it is. And you're like, what if it's not the way it is? Like this whole conversation has been so interesting. Like even just starting from there is no housing crisis. And you're like, oh yeah, there there is not one. Yeah. <laughs> we just have subscribed to this absurd belief. And we, I think culturally, it's so hard for us to give up the, the religion of our, of our family. <laughs> it's, um, true. it's true. Actually, there is now a literature, um, an academic literature that looks at why we don't talk about rent controls. It's not even focused on rent controls and whether they work <laughs> or not. They looked at this very interesting phenomena that given all the housing crisis talk, given all the concerns about housing affordability, rent controls are not seriously considered uh, an option. And, and in many countries, not only in Canada, governments are not carefully looking at you know, designing policies that could be really targeted and, and really well designed to sort of hit all the positives and, and, and try to avoid the negative impacts of it. The fact that we don't even have that conversation became a very interesting <laughs> phenomenon that some academics are now looking at it. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of fascinating, but at the same time, um, disheartening. That's that so is, wild. Yeah, that is wild. <laughs> okay, so... I want to ask one last question because I feel like it is very doom and gloomy, which is fair. Like it is, it is a difficult time in the economy and the housing market, but how can Canadians better understand and engage in discussions about the housing crisis in air quotes (laughs) to advocate for their rights um, if they're tenants and to promote positive housing policy changes? Is there anything that we can do? Absolutely. I think that, um, there are lots of things we can do. I think overall, um, this sort of financial casino uh, that is the housing market right now does not benefit um, working class and families. Definitely does not benefit um, working class families that are renting and they're experiencing um housing insecurity, they're afraid of being evicted, they're spending way too much in, in rent, but also don't benefit house, uh, families that uh, could or, or have assessed um, home ownership uh, because of the levels of indebtedness they're, they're putting themselves through it, uh, the fact that they're counting on the fact that, you know, housing prices will continue to, to grow and they're sort of, in, you know, putting a betting all over the... the, the, the their hopes on this um, to the detriment of of others. Um, I'll give you a very practical example. There is one rent strike now in Toronto. Uh, There are many rent strikes right now in Toronto, but one of them is in Thorncliffe Park Drive. Uh, Mm -hmm. These are low and moderate income tenants. The ultimate owner of those buildings is PSP Investment, which is the pension fund of the federal public servants. Wow. So we have the federal public service pension plan is the landlord of the tenants who are on strike they refuse to negotiate with tenants and they're moving ahead with eviction proceedings um, one of the tenants that is on strike and actively organizing the strike the strike is a federal public servant and wow. now they might he might be evicted by his own pension plan um so that is wild. Okay, so so this is the kind of situation we find ourselves right now. So 
I encourage tenants to join tenant unions and tenants associations. I think the book has two chapters on, on tenant organizing. Historically and currently, um, tenant organizing is very powerful. It can lead to um, better outcomes for tenants who are facing difficulties with their landlords. Also, over time and historically, political pressure from the ground up, from tenant movements have had positive impacts in terms of, of legislations and protection to tenants. Yeah, the tenant unions would be the best way. Is there anything that people who maybe aren't renters can do to support renters as well? Because I know a lot of our listeners are homeowners, but they do still care about affordable housing, if we can call it that after today's episode. <laughs> no, first and foremost... I, as part of as part of my research work, I spend a lot of time with tenant organizers, and I get to talk to tenant organizers across the country. And I don't know any union that would turn down help from folks mm-hmm. uh, who are homeowners. Um, so there is always ways to support, um, be it through funding or volunteer or other ways. Um, there are more and more of those unions across the country. And anyone who helps them, wants to help them, um, should be able to, to find one um, in your area, in your city. And I think that's one way of doing it. The second, uh, of course, has to do with how you vote and, and, and what you demand of politicians. Right now, to be honest, I think all the parties are, are, are doing a bad job at coming up with proposals that would have a direct um, and concrete impact for tenants. Um, every time election comes, uh, we hear uh, the promises of you know more of this or that program that will help folks to access home ownership, um, or this or that program that will help folks who are struggling to pay rent, usually very low income tenants. Um, those initiatives, we can we can assess them you know case by case, but overall. And based on, on some research that I have done, 70% of tenants um, are not anywhere near being able to buy a home. Wow. And nor would them qualify for any subsidy uh, or social housing or non-market housing. So they're right there in the middle. Uh, mm-hmm. And usually... Uh, we don't find anything for them in election platforms. Uh, we don't find uh, any measures like rent controls and and, and, and vacancy controls or um, the right to collective bargaining for tenants so that when they do organize and, 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 and get associations off the ground, uh, landlords have the obligation to engage with them, um, better regulations around eviction. So, uh, for example, people after a particular age um, cannot be evicted because we know mm-hmm. that that would be a sentence to, you know, essentially homelessness and have very, um, puts people at a very serious um, risk physically um, and so on and so forth. We don't hear about those things. So I think it's important to um, to demand those measures, to demand that kind of conversation and, and not get into the trap of like, yeah, the government's doing a lot to buy, you know, to build more houses. And if you build more houses, everything is going to be have better. Well, unfortunately, it won't. Um, you know, building more housing is important. I'm not against supply, but supply is, is, is supply is necessary, but it's not sufficient. 
what we buy, where we buy, who owns it, who finances, the kind of regulatory frameworks we have around rent. All of those things have a great and, and immensely important impact if the desirable outcome um, is affordability and housing security rather than profit and capital gains, right? We, we, yes. we, we have a sort of absurd conversation in this country in that for at least the past 30 years, arguably more, all the measures that have been put in place, and we're talking about developing and financing and commercialization of real estate, are geared towards um, allowing for profit, capital gains, and wealth accumulation. And yet every single day we hear on the radio some shocking news, the housing is not affordable. Of course it's not affordable, right? Yeah. It's sometimes... Uh, Sometimes I think like the conversation is equivalent of, of, of baking a, a lemon pie, you know, following all the steps and using all the right ingredients. And, and then when it comes out of the oven, you're like shocked that it doesn't taste like a chocolate cake. Of course it doesn't taste like a chocolate <laughs> cake. Like you baked a lemon pie. And then I'll get on the radio and people tell me, Ricardo, you, you're an expert. You study this a lot. Can, can you explain it to us why it doesn't taste like a chocolate cake? Do you have any innovative policy ideas to change this outcome? <laughs> like, yeah, use a fucking chocolate cake recipe next time. <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> and, 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 and it's absurd, but unfortunately, it's kind of where we are at right now. So I think I think we have to challenge this, this the basic market assumptions that the market can save us. Um, and the house has to be an asset. Uh, and the people have to be able to make that much money out of housing. I think, you know, I think, I, I hope and, and, I, and I expect that that message will resonate with most of, of, of the folks who listen to your podcast. Like people want to be securely housed. That's what people want. Mm -hmm. They want to, to, you know, enroll their kids in a school and, and know that they're not going to have to move in the middle of the year, uh, school year and hopefully not have to move until the kids, you know, finish that um, education cycle. And, you know, that, that's the kind of security that people uh, want. Um, and um, right now, they're either paying a lot of rent and not having that security, or they're indebting themselves to levels that are financially very risky in order to have that impression of security. Uh, but it's, you know, it's it's a little bit elusive uh, when you're indebted that much, and when you're um, just one job loss away from not being able to to pay your mortgage that you actually have security. It's not so sure. Yeah, that's very true. I appreciate you so much. Like, I thank you so much for taking the time today to chat with us because, like I said, I really love the book. I'm going to link it in the show notes for thank anyone you. who wants to pick it up. I actually got it from Books Without Borders. Ah, Books Without Borders. Where is that one? It's a nonprofit okay. uh, website. Okay. I'll link it there because it was, I had a great experience. Nice experience purchasing from there but anyways i appreciate you very much thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your insights and i'm sure a lot of people will love this episode and i'll definitely lead them towards your thank book. you thanks thanks for having me thanks for having this conversation Thank you for listening to today's episode of Money Feels. You can subscribe to our podcast anywhere you listen. And if you're not subscribed yet, you can join our Patreon for bonus episodes, discount on events, and more. 
Feel free to drop a review and tell us how much you love the show, and we'll see you next week. You can follow us on Instagram at Mixed Up Money for Me, at Bridgie Casey for Bridget, and at Money Feels Podcast, and we'll see you next time. Yeah.